You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Math, uh, Mark. Excuse me. Lane said I'm supposed to be preaching out of Mark today, so I guess that might be where we want to go. Um, we'll be in chapter 10, verses 17 through. 31 this morning. It's a lengthy passage. There's a lot, a lot in this passage this morning. Let me begin first by saying that yes, this is a music stand. And yes, this is paper right here. Yes, I am clean shaven. And yes, this is still Red Tree Church. So in case anybody, you wouldn't believe how much I got busted on this morning by having a music stand and paper notes this morning. However, I was compared a little while ago to Steve Jobs. Which is kind of which is kind of which is kind of cool. So let me introduce the new iPhone 6s to you guys. I'm a little behind, I think. Um, all kidding aside, we live in serious times, and I want to begin this morning by praying. And here's how I want to direct our prayers. There were 11 people that were murdered yesterday, about 10 o'clock in the morning, in a synagogue in Pittsburgh. And I'm going to read their names. And I want to pray for their families. And I want to pray for our country. And the reason I want to do this is partly out of confession. When when that news report popped up on my phone yesterday, I swiped it away. And I paid nary attention to it. Because I had a sermon to work on. And this morning when I opened up Twitter, they had released the names of the people and it just was like a dagger in my heart. It was like there are people that are attached to these, these murders. And, and when the one happened in Vegas, they, they, they'd spent one evening on the news recounting uh, all of the mass murders that had happened in our country over the last several years. And there was at least one of them. I couldn't even remember it happening. It has become so commonplace in our culture for this to happen that we become desensitized to it. So I'm going to read these names and, and then I'm going to pray for our country, for the families, and for our time this morning because we need Jesus this morning. The range of ages are from 54 to 97 years old. Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Mallinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Cecil Rosenthal, who is the brother of David Rosenthal, who also got killed. Bernice Simon, Sylvan Simon, husband and wife. Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, Irving Youngner, all perished yesterday. And they were killed by a man whose name I cannot remember, and I feel bad. I really meant to write it down because he needs to be prayed for too. And so God knows his name, and I'm going to pray right now. Lord, we need you this morning. There's not a human being alive that doesn't need to hear and experience the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we are a broken people, and we live in broken times, but it's no more broken now than it was 2,000 years ago. It's no more broken than it was when sin first cursed the earth, Lord. We are living in broken times. 
We pray for the families of these victims and we pray for the one who perpetrated this heinous murders. Father, they and their families, him and his family and the families of the victims, Lord, they need to know and feel your presence. Lord, we know that justice will be served and we know that earthly justice will be served. We trust that that will happen. But Father, we know that your justice is far greater than any justice that we can mete out here on earth. And so we pray for your presence to be among your people in this country today. Father, would you heal the wounds that exist? Would you heal the racial tension and the hatred that occurs every day? We happen to hear more about it when there are more people, but it happens every single day. Father, heal us. Jesus, save us. Let us be people who are healers, who are menders, who are, who are lovers, who love people and not hate. Your word says that they will know us by our love, not by our apathy, not by our indifference, but by our love. May we be people of love. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17 of the Gospel of Mark. This is the story of the rich young man, and he was setting out on his journey. As as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. 
And this is the Word of God. This is where I want to begin this morning. Um, There's a lot, as I said, there's a lot of really good teaching in this passage this morning. Uh, there, in fact, there are multiple messages that we could preach out of out of this section of scripture alone. It, it could it could be much more than just one. Right? There are many, many um, really interesting and um, familiar verses in this passage that we could preach on and we could apply rightly to our lives. But we only have one message uh, in this particular passage this morning to give, and so I want to begin by using a statement that Jesus said in here. And I think that this is a statement that must always be said whenever we talk about the issue of salvation or the question of salvation. And I think that this is what what I would call our controlling verse this morning uh, of, of all of these verses in this passage. And it's found in verse 27. If you would look at it with me this morning, it's where Jesus says... Or he, he looks at them, he looks at his disciples, and he said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This statement made by Jesus is, is the culmination of the events that we, just, that we just read about, where this man eagerly approaches Jesus Christ, and he asks him the question, How do I get to heaven? Jesus' ultimate answer is, Sell everything you have, and follow me. And in the course of this story, we find out more details about the man. We find out that he seems to be fixated on doing things for God, which makes sense because he's a good law-abiding Jew who, much like Paul, if you remember, says that he is blameless when it comes to the law. Right? Sounds strange when we read that he said, Rabbi, I've kept all of those commandments. But Paul the apostle himself said, as to the law, blameless. He's a good law-abiding Jew. Apparently he doesn't quite understand who he's speaking to. He addresses him as good teacher. We discover at the end of the story that he's a wealthy man. We learn that he becomes depressed and sad after his encounter with Jesus, which is not a typical response to someone who genuinely and sincerely encounters Jesus Christ. And we discover that in his depression and in his sadness, he walks away from Jesus. He approaches him as a good teacher, but he literally walks away from the Savior of the world. Now, we don't know if he knows that or not, but we do. We know that that's the truth. We know that he approaches Jesus as a good teacher, probably as as an itinerant rabbi that was commonplace in those times to come through the towns and He asks him this question. He approaches him one way, but he walks away from the Son of God. We learn something about Jesus, too, in this story. We learn that Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. And it was a look that peered into his soul. It was a knowing look that knew what was in his heart. Because he was Jesus, he was God, he could do that. And he looked into his soul, and it was a a love, it was an agape love. He didn't judge the man. He loved the man for who he was. 
Now in this verse, in this controlling verse, Jesus isn't responding directly to the man. He's actually responding to his disciples who witnessed the interaction. And, and it's as, as if God or as if Jesus is poking and prodding his disciples by making some pretty outrageous statements in this section, second section of, of this story. And Jesus says these two big things. He says, first of all, it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, which amazes his disciples. And if that wasn't clear enough or outrageous enough, he doubles down on that statement. And he says, no, children, you don't understand me. I'm telling you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And this statement then just exceedingly astonishes them, which then prompts them to ask the question, who in the world can be saved then, Jesus? If this is true, who can be saved? And then Jesus gives us the passage, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is his answer to the question, who can be saved? Now here's the reason that I think this is the the verse that controls the entire passage this morning. Because it's the most important answer to the most important question that could ever be asked in all of Scripture or in all of life. The man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the most important question. That's the question that should be on, on all of our minds and all of our hearts. What must we do to inherit eternal life? life. And Jesus' answer is effectively, that is God's job, not your job. There's nothing that you can do. Now I want you to think about this with me this morning. Jesus' answer to the question of the ages, who can be saved, or, or what must I do to be saved, where he says, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. That answer to that question is the very echo of scripture does that make sense that is the very echo of scripture jesus says with man it's impossible to be saved but not with god for all things are possible with god that is the echo of what scripture teaches about jesus here's what it says salvation belongs to the lord that's the echo of scripture that's the echo of Scripture. Let me, let me list out a few of these. Psalm 37, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Psalm 62, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Isaiah 43, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. Isaiah 45, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Jeremiah 3, truly in the Lord is our God, is the salvation of Israel. Hosea 13, but I, the Lord your God, from the land of Egypt, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Jonah 2, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving and sacrifice, and will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Revelation 7, 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And finally, Revelation 19, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Jesus says here what scripture echoes about him. With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible, especially salvation and primarily salvation. In next, week, next week's passage, Jesus will tell his disciples exactly to what extent God will prove that statement when he tells his disciples the Son of Man will be condemned to death, but will rise again. That's the extent God is willing to go to save us, is by killing his own Son, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. Now, the fascinating part about Jesus' answer is that he doesn't actually answer the question, who can be saved? He doesn't, he doesn't go all Matthew 5 on him and say, well, the poor in spirit will be saved, or the persecuted, um, uh, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake will be saved, or the pure in heart will see God, or the peacemakers will be called sons of God. He doesn't say any of that. But what he does is he levels the playing field. In this one statement... He levels the playing field. He says, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't matter if you're clean or sober, single or married, straight or gay. It doesn't matter if you're a child, and it doesn't matter if you're an adult. What matters to Jesus is that God is sovereign in salvation and not man. It matters that he saves when, it matters, it matters. He saves and when God saves, the list I just read to you is blown to pieces because our world is turned upside down and inside out. It matters that when God saves, we would realize that it's Jesus who is on the throne and not us. That it's Jesus' identity and not our own. It matters when Jesus says, follow me. It means something. It means something to him, and it should mean something to us. It matters because we then set our minds on something other than our marital status, something other than our wealth portfolio, something other than our ethnicity, our gender, our sexual preference, our age, our sobriety, our height, our weight, because we have become new creations. That's what Jesus wants us to know this morning. God saves and creates new hearts. We desperately need new hearts. That's what it means when God saves. When God moves, He enables us by the power of His Holy Spirit to set our minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are of the earth. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. That is what he is saying to the rich man. Get rid of all that stuff. Find your life in me and come follow me. Crazy as it seems, we're actually called by God to hide. Your problem 
and my problem is that we're hiding in the wrong places. We hide in the world instead of in our Savior. And let's not be so naive to think that we cannot hide in the midst of church. Because we can, and I know we can because I've done it before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, through the call of Jesus, we become individuals. He says, every one of us is called separately and must follow alone, but we're frightened of solitude. And we try to protect ourselves from that solitude by merging ourselves in society of our fellow man and in our material environment. He puts his finger right on the issue. When we're called out of darkness when we're called into light, when we're made a new creation, our flesh still desires and craves and clings to isolation and stuff. That's just what happens. As amazing as it is that God saves us, we are still, in His eyes, we are redeemed and saved. He sees us covered with the blood of the Lamb. But in our flesh, we still crave and desire isolation and stuff. God saves us in order to sanctify us. And he's sanctifying us so that we may glorify him. We exist to glorify God by what? Seeing lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, I believe that Jesus is calling us out today. I believe he is saying to us today what he told the rich man. Let go of everything that weighs you down and follow me. The question now becomes, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? We can't literally follow Jesus because he doesn't walk the earth. So we can't do what the disciples did and literally walk the same path and be with Jesus in his person every day. So, so what does that mean? Are we simply to follow his teachings as good principles to live by? We know people, we probably all know people that would agree to that, that would say yes. That's a good way to live. The teachings of Jesus are good. If we all lived by the teachings of Jesus, the world would be a better place. And in a sense, that's true. There's only one problem. We can't do that. We can't keep that law. That law points us to the one that did keep the law. I think one way to answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus, is to ask this question that I'm going to pose to you right now. Do you consider yourself, ask yourself this question, do I consider myself a Christian or am I a disciple? Do I consider myself a Christian or am I a disciple? Depending on how you honestly answer that question will help you understand and provide insight to what it means to follow Jesus. Here's what I mean by this. The word Christian is a static term. We all use that that language. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. But the word Christian is a static term. It's a fixed term. It's a descriptive term, right? And it's only used in Scripture three times. That's it, three times. The word disciple is a dynamic word, and it implies action. There's like an, an emotive aspect to the word disciple. Do you know how many times the word disciple or a derivative of that is used in the New Testament? 268 times. I guess depending on the translation you read, 268 times, 238 times in the Gospels alone. 
It's a word that means learner. It's a dynamic word. Now, we need to be careful when we say learner because it's not that we need to fill our minds with a bunch of information. I fear that, that what, we, what we have a tendency, and again, I, I say this because I've done this. Perhaps this is true of you as well, but I fear that we've filled our minds with so much information that we've become spiritually obese. God saves us in Jesus, and then he says, come and follow me. Be conformed to me. Be transformed into my image. That's Romans 8.29 and 2 Corinthians 3.18. Transform and conform both share a root word, form, which means to be molded and shaped into something. I was trying to think of examples of that. Um, one example could, could be if you've ever seen a hunk of metal melt down. You could even just see it in your mind's eye. If a hunk of metal or a car, something is melt down into liquid, and then it travels a distance in a factory into some sort of a shape or a mold and is transformed into something and is conformed to the shape of whatever it is. A, a bumper. I don't know. Or an ice cube. Water comes out of your tap into a tray of some shape. Ours just happens to be our icebreaker. Our ice maker is broken, so we use actual ice cube trays. If you don't know what that is, you can Google it. <laughs> but that water can be molded into anything, any shape that you may have. That water is transformed and conformed into the image of, his, of an ice cube. Are we here to feed our minds or are we here to be transformed and conformed to Jesus and then go change the world? That's the question. Now, feeding our minds is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't feed our mind. We, we should feed our mind. The Word of God is there for us to feast on, to feed our mind, but we have to exercise. We have to exercise as well. Because one of those words, Christian, disciple, as we said, indicates action and the other does not. I want to say something to you. I want you to think about this. When the world experiences us as Christians, they yawn. I think when the world experiences us as Christians, I think they yawn. But when they experience us as disciples, revival breaks out. I believe that. I believe that. I believe that when the world experiences Christians, they yawn. I know that's a categorical statement. I'm saying it to be somewhat provocative. But when they experience us as disciples, there's no question revival will break out. Because people then will actually experience the living God. Not dead religion. They will experience the hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus when we are disciples and they experience us as disciples. They get a whiff of the aroma as, of Christ. Yes, to some it will be the stench of death, but to many it will be the aroma of our Savior, and we need that today. We need a Holy Spirit-led revival in our times. So this isn't just a matter of semantics. This isn't just a matter of pulling out words and, and try to, to fix meanings on, on them. Because when we hear the word disciple, what I think often happens is we think, yeah, I need that. I need to be discipled, right? That's a natural question some of you may be asking. You may be thinking, I know where this message is going. We're going to talk all about discipleship. I need discipleship. What's the plan, Craig? What are you guys going to roll out? You have to wait. 
But we say that. That's a natural thing to ask. That's not a wrong instinct to have. But what does Jesus say to us? Jesus says, follow me. Jesus is our discipler. Jesus is our discipler. First and foremost, Jesus is our discipler. It's not a wrong instinct to want discipleship. It's a right instinct. And the leaders of your church are working on what that's going to look like. And we will roll that out. But first and foremost, Jesus is our discipler. Being a Christian is being a follower of Jesus, which by definition implies that we are individually pursuing him. Jesus calls us, as he calls the rich man, to divest ourselves of the things of this world that weigh us down and follow him, pursue him, be transformed and conformed to him. How are you doing with that? That's only a question you can answer. But it's a question that we need to be asked as well, often, both from up here and in individual settings. Now, does this mean that we have to sell a bunch of our stuff, give it to the poor, and drastically change our lifestyle? For some, maybe. For some, that that might be what God's calling you to do. That's between you and God. However, I'm seriously convicted for for myself, but also for for the church, for for the church on the whole, but, but for our church here, Red Tree Church, I'm seriously convicted that we're way too out of balance in our lives. Specifically when it comes to time. For some, our money may be tied to that. But for most, I just think that we've made ourselves too busy. I think we've made ourselves too busy pursuing things and not Jesus. We have razor-thin margins in our life, folks. Some of us have zero margin in our lives. No margin for hospitality, gospel hospitality. Many of us have so little margin that we don't even have time to spend consistent daily time with the Word of God, pursuing Jesus. Our margin is so thin in our lives. And if we're not pursuing Christ in that way, how are we pursuing Him? Because you can't just get it once a week on a Sunday. This is discipleship. When we preach the Word of God, this is, this is probably first and foremost a form of discipleship on our church. But it's not the only way. I don't know where I was <clears throat> when I first heard this, but I saw fit to write it in the, what used to be the first page of my Bible. It no longer is because it's falling apart and I can barely read. But I, couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to throw this away just because it says Holy Bible on it let alone because I wrote on it. But I can't remember where I heard it. It was here somewhere, Red Tree. And uh, here's what it says. Here's what I wrote. It says, uh, discipleship is reordering our lives around God's glory. It, it, I see head shaking. It's like, that's, not a, that's, that's a no-brainer, Craig. That, we know that. Well, when I first heard that, I'm like, huh, I can't believe that. That makes so much sense to the degree that I wrote it, I wrote it on my Bible. I don't want to lose that. Discipleship is reordering our lives around the glory of God. That's it. That's what Jesus is calling the rich man to, and it's what he's calling to us to today. Here's the thing. God looks at you this morning, and much like he looks at the, at the, at the rich man, he's loving you. He's loving you this morning. He's saying, 
He's saying, come on, I'm loving you. I'm looking at you through the eyes of Jesus. Come to me. I see great worth and I see great value because that's how I've created you. He's saying, lay down the burdens of your life. Lay down and put behind you the distractions that encumber you and let's run the race. Folks, time is short. In the Psalms, it says that our years are what? 70 years, 80 years at best? I don't have a whole lot of time left. I'm 55 years old. I've done the numbers. Some of, you that are, some of you that are younger, it seems like an eternity. Some of you are closer than I am. We never know, none of us know, when we're going to breathe our last breath. We have no idea. I could walk out this door today and get hit by a bus. Maybe not a bus, maybe a fire truck. It can happen that quickly, though. We need to run the race. For some of us, that could be laying down wealth. It could be, could be laying down stuff. It could, be, it could be certain relationships that you need to divest yourself. It really sounds strange that, that there, there are relationships in our lives that we need to, to maybe press pause on. And, and I'm not necessarily or only talking about the ones that are obviously destructive to us. Those, are, those can be easy, can be easy, not always, but they can be easy to say, I'm going to stop that. But some of the good relationships we have, we may need to evaluate and maybe press pause on some of those for a change or for a season. What is it that you need to do in order to reorder your life so that you can faithfully follow Jesus, be discipled by him, and then go and make disciples? Ask God for the courage to do that. Ask God for the courage to reorder your life so that you can center it around the gospel and follow Jesus and be a disciple maker. Ask God to, to, to create margin in your life, to make those decisions so that we can, we can exhibit gospel hospitality in our lives, in our homes, in our spaces. Some of us need to lay the burden down, perhaps for the very first time. Perhaps for the very first time in our life, we need to lay the burden down of sin and follow Jesus and submit to him. Life is full of anxiety for us and frustration. It's full of angerness and bitterness. It's full of addictions and confusion and relationships are broken and they're strained at best and you're tired. Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me and lay that down. All of you who labor and who are heavy laden, Jesus says, I will give you rest. I will give you the rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come to me and follow me. For the first time, some of you need to do that. You need to realize that the Holy Spirit's working in your heart right now. And he is drawing you to himself And God is beckoning you through the power of his Holy Spirit, whispering to you, telling you, put it down. Put it down. Trust in me and let's do this. Let's walk this life out together. Let's do better. Let's run the race together. Because what happened yesterday in Pittsburgh and what's happening now, the ugliness and the murder and the biting commentary that's going on in our society, the ugliness, the hate, the utter lack of love. The world needs, the world needs you. 
God invites us into that process of actually making the world whole again. And the world desperately needs love. Desperately needs love. The good news is we don't do this on our own. The Holy Spirit is with us. The, the comforter, right? The Spirit is speaking to some of you today, really all of us today. The Spirit, I think, is speaking into our lives. For some, it's lay it down and surrender to Jesus as your Savior. But I think the Spirit of God is speaking to each of us this morning. So I ask you again, what is keeping you today from reordering your life around the glory of God? What do you need to lay down? What do you need to sell? Literally, perhaps, or figuratively. What do you need to maybe take a season, step away from? And just say, not for a while. Just press pause on that one thing. These are difficult questions because a lot of these things are good things. You're you're maybe running through your list and you're like, these are all good things. There's nothing wrong with these things that I'm doing. But we still need to press pause Because Jesus is calling us to something far greater. The essence of discipleship is denial, lest we forget that. The essence of following Jesus is denying ourselves, is putting it down, putting down what feeds us so that we can be available to other people through Jesus Christ. That's the work that we need to do. I encourage you to process that with somebody this week whether it be a friend or a spouse or in your gospel communities or discipleship groups, I encourage you to process this this week. What do you need to do? What do you need to lay down to follow Jesus? As I said at the beginning, God saves us in order to sanctify us, and he's sanctifying us so that we may glorify him. We glorify God by seeing lives, our lives as well as other lives, transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and conformed into his image. And we said that this is supernatural work. The rich man asked, what must I do, Jesus? He said to Jesus. And Jesus said, this is a supernatural act of God. And it's a beautiful thing because the effects are so far reaching. Right? This isn't just a, a personal thing. Right? Being transformed, being conformed, being saved is, is personal, but it's not private. There's a difference between those two. It's not just a personal thing with us. It's not, or it is a personal thing, but it's not private. So to help flesh this out a little bit, I want to look at the last three verses of our passage this morning. <clears throat> Beginning in, in verse 28. It says, Peter began to say to him, which, which makes us think that Jesus interrupts Peter here. Because he was probably looking at Peter with that knowing look, just like he was looking at the young man, and just like he was looking at his disciples, and he knew what they were going to ask. And he knew what was in the heart of the rich young man. And he knows what's in the heart of Peter. So perhaps he was cutting Peter off, because Peter began to say, See? Say, awesome, we are Jesus. We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, Peter, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Now in this time. 
houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is saying that life with me requires sacrifice, but it's worth it. He's saying it's, it's well worth it because I make up for every sacrifice you make in the here and in the now. The gospel turns our lives upside down and inside out, and it's difficult. It's hard, and it's challenging, and it's painful. When Jesus calls us to himself, and when we love people to the point where we want to see them come to Jesus Christ, we're not signing up for a Costco membership. We're not signing up for a life of ease. But I think the culture looks at us and yawns because that's the life we pretend that we have. This life of ease. Rather than a life of self-denial. In following Jesus. and being a sacrificial servant to one another and to the world. Some of those first responders were seen running towards a man with a gun. Towards the scene where a man was killing people. They were running into danger. They were laying down their life. They were willing to lay down their life for other people. That's a picture of the gospel. Would we do the same? The gospel turns our life upside down and inside out. It's challenging and it's painful. For some of us, that's a physical pain. For some of us, it's a physical pain. For some people in the world, in this country, but not as much in this country, there's a physical persecution of pain. You read an email this week. I'm not going to go into detail because I don't know how much I can really share with one of our missionary partners because this will go out over the, over the airways. But there's a, a story of a man in a country that is close to the gospel who was a, an imam, a priest, a Muslim priest, who actually renounced that and became a Christian. And his family is now holding him in his home threatening to kill him unless he renounces Christianity. That's a real thing that's happening. It doesn't happen as much in this country, but it does happen. Jesus says it's worth it. There's an emotional pain for some of us. There's a very real sense of loneliness for a lot of us. Some of us in this room are experiencing that. There's a loneliness that sets in because of the circumstances that we're in, because of the decisions that we have made because of what we have decided to give up. Jesus says those things that you give up, that you're thinking of right now in your own heart, as well as homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children's and lands, And for some of you, calling yourself a believer has definitive family implications. I know that because I know some of your stories. There's an impact that family has because you have decided to follow Jesus. So that's a real real thing. But Jesus says, you will receive 100-fold now in this time those very same things, he says. Houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and lands. What is Jesus getting at here? Well, the big picture, of course, is that Jesus says, even in this life, I'm going to fill that void because I'm better. I will fill that void. And that's the ultimate answer. 
right? Jesus is better. Jesus is the answer. And it's not just that Jesus has the power to save, not just that one day we will be with him, but it's in the now and in the here, in the here and the now that the power of the gospel can actually be on display in a world that is sin sick because Jesus is with us and the spirit is our comforter. Jesus is saying that it's never going to be a bad deal to follow me. Right? It's going to be hard, but it isn't going to be a bad deal to follow me. He says, even if you lose all of the relationships that most matter to you, you will not have lost more than you will gain even in this life. Right? Let me say that again. Even if you lose all of your relationships, Jesus says, that matter most to you, you will not have lost more than you will gain even in this life. That's a bit of a provocative statement, isn't it? It's an unusual promise, too, because here's the hook in that. Again, we know that Jesus is the answer. He's the one that fills the void. But there's a sense that 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 promise depends on us to fulfill it. Now, I know that sounds heretical, but it's not, right? The take-home for us, the take-home for us isn't to think, uh, or for us isn't to think that isn't it nice that Jesus fills that void, So we know you're struggling, so go out. Jesus is going to fill that void. You'll be fine. He can take care of you. And that's true. That's that's a right inclination. That's That's truth. However, the take home isn't just to think that because there's a tangible aspect to our faith. Jesus saves people. He saves flesh and blood. We are sitting in this room. We are, we are people that have blood rushing through our veins. Our, our eyes are blinking. Some of them are blinking slowly. But our eyes are blinking, right? Our, our lungs are, are expanding and contracting. We are living, breathing human beings who speak with one another, who help one another out. Here's the thing. Here's the take home. We are the mothers and the fathers. We are the sisters and the brothers. We are the sons and the daughters that Jesus is promising to those who leave those behind. It's you and it's me. We are the ones that can fulfill that. We are the safe place of refuge. It's our homes and it's in our relationships and it's in our conversations. Do you see why margin is so important? Do you see why it's so important that we create margin in our lives so that we can be that place? Because there are implications, not just for our own walk with Jesus, but for those that we touch in our life. Our margins become so thin that we cannot do this. We cannot help fulfill this promise in people's lives. It's the church, you guys. That's the church's role. The living, breathing organism that is the people of God that makes up the church. So for us today at Red Tree, Jesus is saying this. If someone were to come to our church and they experience faith for the first time and Jesus saves them and they come to faith and they join our church and if they come from a background where they lose their their community and they lose their family and they lose their patterns of intimacy, will they be able to say that as, as a result of coming to Red Tree that they have more family and not less? Will they be able to say that we have more community now here 
at Red Tree than we had before because of what we left? Will they be able to say we have more intimacy than before? Do we think someone can say that if they come and they join our church? Do we really say that? Do we think that? Do we believe that? Because the answer, if the answer is no, then we're calling Jesus a liar. Because he said you're going to experience it a hundredfold. A hundredfold. We call him a liar. If it's yes, if the answer is yes, and I hope the answer is yes, then this church family at Red Tree, because that's what it truly would be called, is family. If that's true of us, then we will truly be called family. We use that language. It will truly be an undeniable demonstration to this world that following Jesus is worth it. That's what that will mean. I want to be a church like that. Do you? I want to be a church like that. Now that pushes buttons for us because there are people in the world who are a lot different than you and I. Some of those people live next door to us. Some of them we go to school with. Some of them are here. We're all here. We're all a little strange, right? But that pushes buttons because when we think about that aspect of being loving and caring and nurturing, there's a potential for people to come in through our doors that look, act, and believe differently than we do. But they need to know Jesus. And I want this space to be a space where they can wrestle with that. And they may say things, and they may do things, and they may look ways that are different than we are. And we need to look at them like Jesus looks at them. And we need to love them. Because they're not getting it in the world. And if they do get it in the world, they're getting a version of it that they think is life-giving community, but it's not. But they're looking at a church, and they're looking at a bunch of Christians who are religious They're not seeing dedicated followers of Jesus who who are saying, come on and love our Savior with us so that we can go and we can be the hands and the feet of Jesus to a dying world. Folks, the culture has changed. Duh. The culture has changed and it continues to change. The events of yesterday in Pittsburgh prove that. There will be events that happen today. Some of them will be newsworthy. Most of them will not that will prove that. Beliefs and attitudes about the church have changed with it. That's not the culture's fault. That's our fault. That's the church's fault. That's not their fault. What are we portraying to the world around us? What are we portraying to our neighbors? What are we portraying to even some of those in our own household? We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do here at Red Tree. We know that. Your leaders know that. But as a body of believers, we have a, we have a lot of work to do. Things need to be shored up. Some of them are small things, practical things. Some of them are big things. Right? All of them are spiritual in nature, some way or another. But the most significant work that we can each commit ourselves to is to answer the question that I asked earlier, do I consider myself a Christian or am I a disciple? Do I consider myself a Christian or am I a disciple? Because Jesus is saying today, let's go. Lay down the burden and follow me. And let's go change the world. Let's pray.
Father, may may the words of Jesus may the words of Jesus when he says come follow me ring in our hearts in a fresh way this morning. May may there be something in our spirit, in our soul, Lord, that is stirring in us, Lord. That knows that you as our Father are looking at us with eyes of love, not judging. You're not looking us looking at us and calling us lazy or apathetic. You're not looking to to discipline us. You're looking at us with love as Jesus looks at us. And you're saying, come on. Put down those things that are burdening to you, that are weighing you down, and follow me. Let me disciple you, Jesus is saying. And in the process, you will disciple others. And they will come to know me. And they will disciple others. And the church will grow. Big C church. People will come to life. Lord, may that be true. May we want that in our hearts. May we desire that. May we put down what is burdening us and follow our Savior. Because whatever we decide to put down, Jesus will fill that void a hundredfold. Let us also be people of love to one another. God, may, may we as the church, as Red Tree Church here in West County, God, may we love one another with a love that is so attractive to the world around us that they look at it and they say, what is going on there? What on earth is going on in that church? They love each other so well. May we be people of grace. May we be people of kindness and mercy and gentleness and meekness and faithfulness, and joy above all. May we love because you love us first. May that love be an active love. We will give you the glory because it's because of you and it's through you that this happens. And we thank you because we know that you're working in hearts this morning. All of this and so much more, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.